readings. The first reading comes from the Old Testament and it's from Leviticus 19 and it's verse 1 and then verses 9 to 18. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not deceive one another. Do not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of the Lord. I am the Lord. Do not defraud or rob your neighbour. Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind. But fear your God. I am the Lord. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favouritism to the great. But judge your neighbour fairly. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbour's life. I am the Lord. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbour frankly so that you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbour as yourself. I am the Lord. The second reading comes from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 42 in the New Testament. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbour? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell in the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha. Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. 
Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Belle, who is uh, here and here. Uh, she's on the, online, and uh, welcome all the people online. Who do I see there? I saw Bronwyn there, Daniel from Berlin. Um, who else did I see? Jane Bray is there as well. And Bronwyn, wonderful to have you here. Um, I hope it's valuable for everybody here present, as, uh, as well as online. Just to let you know that we're trying to run a service a little bit tighter today um, in order to do the National Church Life Survey after the service and still get you out at the normal time. And uh, I'll tell you a bit more about this in a moment, but we'd love you to, to fill out the National Church Life Survey, even if you're visiting today, because it allows us to know who is here on the night of the 20th of, of, of March. And I'll tell you a bit more about that in a while, but it's about uh, 15 minutes or so. Sometimes people take a bit longer, sometimes people take shorter. It asks you some questions about your faith, your life in church, giftings, uh, passions, um, all sorts of things uh, that pertain to your, to your experience of uh, your faith and your life here at this church. And it's really valuable for you, I think, just to consider your own life. They're just questions where you go, I've never thought about that. And then it's valuable for us as a church as we chart a path forward, especially with our vision and mission at our church. It's also very valuable to the national church um, as we consider ways forward. We'll tell you more about that in a little while. Um, and also, we'd love you to join us after the service uh, for Japanese at the restaurant. And if you want to do that, then I'll tell you about this later again. But the moment we finish the service, instead of doing the NCLS, fill out your, um, your menu and then come back and then fill it out and then it'll all be ready for when we finish our service. Okay, is that fair enough? Everyone know where we're going? That was all probably too much to say. I'm going to look at that video later and go, you spoke too much, Justin. Isn't that right, Malcolm? Okay. Would you like me to pray as we look at this remarkable passage? Let me pray. Father, we pray that you'll touch and transform our lives, our ears first, that we might hear your voice tonight and respond. Our hearts then, that we might obey and obey willingly, then touch and transform our feet so that we might follow Jesus Christ, our great God and Saviour, and then touch and transform our hands, that we might serve others in love, just like Jesus says, and we pray this in his name. Amen. Jesus said in Luke chapter 7, whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. We heard Jesus say it last week, as Rob Forsyth took us through Luke 7, 36 to 50. I'll say it again, Jesus said, Whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Jesus said these words, looking straight at and through a, what's called, sinful woman of the town. She'd burst into a party, Simon the Pharisee's good party, and in love and desperation, she shed tears of repentance and she wiped Jesus' feet with her tears. It's very messy. Sir Bernard of Clairvaux said, the tears of the penitent form the wine of the angels. Never better described than the woman in Luke 7. I love this, by the way. If you look closely at the text, Jesus looks at the woman and while looking at the woman, addresses Simon. And as far as I can tell from the text, he never 
takes his gaze away from her while addressing the important person. Now, you've just got to stop and think about that for a little while. The passage says, Looking at the woman, he spoke to Simon and said, You see this woman? We're both looking at her. You see this woman? She did everything that you should have done if you were being merely polite to me, let alone loving me. But she's done everything you didn't do. Therefore, I tell you, continuing looking at the woman while addressing Simon, therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Luke, or rather Jesus, raises in chapter 7 of Luke the remarkable idea of a little heart, one who loves little, meaning a self-justifying heart, a defensive heart, a non-generous heart, a critical heart, a judgmental heart. This is a little heart. Today we turn to the famous, very famous parable of the Good Samaritan, a story Jesus told to a, a religious lawyer uh, who, we're told, wanted to justify himself. He had a little heart. And I want to ask tonight, what can we do about our little hearts, if we should have them, or find that we have them? The challenge of the chapter is simple. It's in chapter 10, verse 37, on page 8. Jesus says, after telling the story of the Good Samaritan, go and do likewise. Do the same thing. Go and do likewise. Four profound words. But how? I want you to listen to Bishop Tom Wright on this parable. He says this, Often this parable is simply taken in a general moral sense. If you see someone in the ditch, go and help them. Sometimes, where people remember that in Jesus' day, the Samaritans and the Jews hated each other like poison, this is expanded into a further moral lesson about the wickedness of racial and religious practice. Again, another moral lesson. But if we are to have any chance of understanding what Jesus himself meant and what is at stake in the wider conversation with the lawyer, we need to go deeper. Tonight I want to go deeper than the mere challenge, go and do likewise. Although I want to be challenged by the command, but I want to go a bit deeper. When set in the context of the lawyer's question and knowing the hatred between Jews and Samaritans, we, begin, we can begin to see how powerful this story was then and how it still cuts hearts and challenges lives today. Indeed, it exposes our little hearts that scramble for self-justification. And the passage, or rather Jesus, calls not only for their expansion, the expansion of our hearts, but indeed their replacement, a whole new way of living, a new heart. We'll come to that at point three if you're following the outline on page 10. We're in a Lent series uh, in Luke called Grace in the Life of Jesus. We've focused on God's abundant grace or gift to the unworthy. And it's been surprising and challenging. And the response it requires in return. It's unconditioned, but not unconditional. Today our focus is on the grace that we ourselves have to show. Uh, this grace is part of the response that grace, God's grace requires. 
That is, if we have been show, shown mercy, then we too show mercy in return. If we've been showered with grace, we shower grace to others. So this passage opens up sort of the boundaries we want to draw. But the focus is on us tonight. So three things. One, introducing the little heart. I'm going to talk to you about this religious lawyer. Exposing the little heart. That's the parable. And then replacing the little heart. I'm going to talk a little about the Mary and Martha at the end. So firstly, introducing the little heart. Let me introduce you to this expert in the law. Not named, so perhaps he didn't become a Christian. Perhaps like Simon the Pharisee. We've already met the grumblers in Luke, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, people like me. They teach the Bible, they know it. They love the status quo, but they want to justify themselves. They don't like Jesus' world-changing notion of grace because he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. He's showering, showering gifts on the wrong people instead of using gifts to codify correct behaviour and encourage conformity to good morals. Jesus is challenging all of that with who, who he includes. So the grumblers, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they love little, they have little hearts. Let me introduce you to another one. Verse 25, on one occasion, an expert in the law... By the way, you're not supposed to think of, you know, a senior partner in Minter Ellison. You're supposed to think of a sort of theological lecturer who understands the law, the Torah, the Jewish Torah. And he stood up, we're told, to test Jesus. That's key. Tells you something about his heart. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Taken on its own, it's a good question and one rarely asked. I mean, if you've never asked the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, then what have you been doing? What have you been doing with your life? He said. It is the question. And really what it is, is it's what does God require of me to be part of the kingdom to come? The kingdom now and the kingdom of to come. In other words, what do I have to do to be aligned with God and find life? If you've never asked the question... Tonight's the night to ask it. The question's a good one, but we find out he doesn't really want to know the answer. He wants to check Jesus out. He wants to test him. At its best, this may be to engage only in theological debate, sort of theological chess to win. At worst, he's trying to catch Jesus out. After all, these people want him dead. But Jesus won't be caught out. He says to the teacher of the law, what is written in the law? You tell me what you know and how do you read it? What does it say? How do you interpret it? And the answer the teacher of the law gives is a good one, even if well known at the time. In verse 27 he says, I know what's written in the law. What's written in the law, what we have to do to inherit eternal life is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength and love your neighbour as yourself. It's a good answer even if the Sunday school answer in a Jewish synagogue. You know, in a Christian church, it's God, Jesus, and the Bible. In a Jewish synagogue, it's love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, Deuteronomy 6. Love your neighbour as yourself, Leviticus 19. Now, Jesus has more to say, and he'll say it, but for the moment, he's affirming. He says, you've answered correctly, you've chosen wisely. 
Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. You're aligned with God. Love God, love your neighbor, you're aligned. Then we're told the key, verse 29, but he wanted to justify himself. So there's something going on in his heart. And so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He wanted to justify himself. So that means he had a heart issue and he has a little heart. I'll tell you why. To understand his question, who is my neighbor, you've got to understand some of the context. The word neighbor does not mean then and did not mean does not mean now. Everybody. For a neighborhood is not everywhere. If you said who's in your neighborhood, you don't mean who's in, you know, you mean who's around me, around here. So a neighbor is one close to you, geographically or relationally. A neighbor is one near us or even one of us. And that's exactly how the word is used in the commandment in Leviticus that the lawyer quotes and Jesus endorses. And that's in Leviticus 19, just read to us by Bell, the bottom of page 7. God says, the Lord says, do not hate a fellow Israelite, literally your brother. Don't hate your brother in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so that you will not share in their guilt. Clean lines. Don't seek revenge or bear a grudge in your heart because where else do you bear a grudge? Against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Look closely at that verse. Fellow Israelite, a brother, anyone among your people, verse 18, is parallel to neighbor. And they refer to the same thing. In other words, it's people around you and your brother, people like you. So for the expert in the law, the question, who is my neighbour, is asking, where do you think the boundary is between us and them? It's neighbour is us. You know, who's us? You shall love your neighbour as yourself. So where's the line? There are people I don't like, but they live near me. Or there are people who oppose me with their behaviour their skin colour or their enemy tendencies. He wanted to justify himself. In other words, he wants to come off okay. He wants to look good. Or maybe he just wants to win. But in the end, it's all really about him because he's trying to work out what the boundary is of neighbour so that he can exclude some people from his love and still inherit the kingdom of God. So I'm still alive with God because those people didn't deserve to be loved. Just as an aside, I do wonder whether he wanted to justify himself is the main mode of social media. Just interested in that thought. So there's a little heart. Let's, expo- let's see what Jesus does to expose the little heart. He tells a story to the teacher of the law to expose his heart and to challenge him. And so he tells the story about a Samaritan one. We've called him a good one. Because they're all good. Because that's what good Samaritans are. He tells the story about a good Samaritan assisting a man who's been beaten up by the side of the road. We know this story so well that we might not get it. Or being familiar with it, we might not allow it to have the impact it should. And it should have an impact. It should bug us. Let me show you what I mean by being familiar. Just fill in the blank for a moment. The Samaritan was... He... Blank. 
he was a blank Samaritan. He was a what? He was, the answer is good, right? He was a good Samaritan. Samaritans, whatever they are, are good. We all know that because we're so familiar with the parable. The parable is universally called the parable of the good Samaritan. And so pervasive is the power of this parable in the modern era that there are good Samaritan clothing bins where you can help your neighbour with your clothes you don't want anymore. There's the Samaritan's Purse, which is overseas aid. Seinfeld and his friends go to jail. Actually, Mikey, it's been 25 years, I can spoil this, can't I? Now, that's a big question. Can you spoil a show 25 years later? They go to jail uh, because they disobey, in New York, a Good Samaritan law. I mean, they've made a law called the Good Samaritan law in Seinfeld. There's even a group in the United Kingdom, a phone-in anti-suicide group like Lifeline called the Samaritans. So they're good. But if you were a Jew back in Jesus' time, you would know that Samaritans are definitely not good. You can get an idea of the deep historical animosity of Jew to Samaritan from a saying in a Jewish text called Ecclesiasticus, and it's printed in the front of your orders of service. This is 200 years old, but I'm about to read, sorry, 200 years before Christ, part of the Apocrypha. And you're going to hear hostility that went back hundreds of years before Jesus. Listen, there are two people my soul detests. The third is not a nation at all. One, the inhabitants of Mount Seir, the Edomites, detest them. Two, the Philistines, they have their nation. And thirdly, the ones that are no nation at all, the stupid people in Shechem, the Samaritans. They're stupid. Jesus uses the fact of this hatred to shock his listeners about how they can obey God's commands. So now remember, the question is, who is my neighbour? And in reply, verse 30, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, 27 kilometres, winding road, dangerous road. And he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away leaving the man half dead. So there's a dude lying on the side of the road. In verse 31, we find a priest walks by. In verse 32, a Levite sees him and walks by. All too dangerous, all too busy, all too complex. And presumably not my neighbour, that's what they think. But verse 33, a Samaritan. I love that line, by the way, but a Samaritan. As he travelled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he ensures that the innkeeper took care of him, all expenses paid. This is sort of what you might do in a world without hospitals. Now, it's worth noting the many details of the story, not least, which is the obvious one, which is that the man, the teacher of the law, would have hated. We'll come to that in a moment. But here's some other things to note about the Samaritan. He stops, he looks, he sees. A bit like Jesus seeing the woman and talking to Simon. 
intercedes. Number two, he takes pity. In the original Greek, he's moved in his guts. Number three, he takes action, practical action. He went to him, very incarnational. He took the first step, which would have been a hard one to make. And four, he administers not only first aid, bandages, but went the extra mile too at cost to self, some sacrifice to self. And Jesus says to you and to me, go and do likewise. Do we notice needs? Do we see? Because there's plenty to see around us. Are we moved in our hearts, in our guts, to take action, not just first aid? It's very challenging, isn't it? Very challenging. But note, this is not just a general call to be kind to people in a ditch or even to challenge systemic racism, although it might do all that. This is about a person's heart, about the lawyer who wanted to justify himself and test Jesus. So Jesus says, which of the three priests, Levites, Samaritans, do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? It's such an interesting question because you, you want him to say, you want him to say to the man, do you think that that guy on the ditch was your neighbour? Because you've asked, who is my neighbour? Do you think he's your neighbour? <laughs> you see? Which of these three do you think was a neighbour? Because it goes both ways. To the man who fell into the hands of the robbers. Verse 37, the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. So he gets it right. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Jesus flips this on the for this lawyer on two levels. The obvious one is that the bad man in the story is the good man. And the good men, the priests and the Levites, are the bad men who, you know, the ones you use to justify yourself aren't all Samaritans bad. They are the group, or identified here, you know, as one of the group that Jesus uses to contemn, condemn this religious lawyer's little heart. You'll be surprised who will challenge our hearts. The less obvious is, is flip is this. The lawyer has asked a minimizing question. Who is my neighbor? He wanted to justify himself. Who is my neighbor? Where's the boundary line so that I can ignore some people and still say I've aligned with God and the life he gives in the kingdom? But look at verse 36. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor in, in their being? Was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And Jesus, so Jesus flips from who is my neighbor, where's the boundary? To which of them is a neighbor, from drawing lines to being a neighbor. In other words, maximizing, not minimizing. And in doing so, he slices into the heart of the lawyer then, and to all the experts in the law in the room here today. So let's draw some threads together. Thirdly, replacing the little heart. Who's challenged, by the way? Who's? I'm challenged, by the way, Tiffany, Gromlin, Graham would love to pray with you. During it, don't do NCLS. Go and pray with them if you'd like to. Then come back and do NCLS. Third, replacing the little heart. Indeed, the parable does expose our little hearts. Too busy 
to help someone in need whom we come across, heading off to do important things, drawing lines because there are people you don't like, so you're not going to touch them. So animosity drives things rather than the command of God. Judgmentalism. But the gospel of Jesus Christ, the one preached from this pulpit every Sunday for 200 and something years, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel of God's grace and subsequent transformation calls not only for the expansion of our hearts to be sort of challenged to act a little bit more lovingly towards people we find hard, calls not only for the expansion of our little hearts from little to big or from hard to soft, but the gospel calls for their replacement from an old heart to a new one or a dying heart to a live one, alive in God. And so you need to know in the context of Luke, this parable has been set in the context of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus in Luke's gospel is heading to Jerusalem. Luke, more than any other gospel, has a geographic movement to it. In Luke's 1 to 9, Jesus has a ministry in the north in Galilee, whereas in other gospels, he goes to Jerusalem in the south and comes back. In Luke's gospel, it's almost all in the north. Then from chapter 9, verse 51, he sets his face towards Jerusalem. He enters Jerusalem in chapter 19, and then from 19 to the end, he's in Jerusalem, securing salvation, peace, grace, mercy for sinners like me. Luke 9, verse 51 is a famous verse. It goes like this. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. In the King James Version, he set his face like flint on Jerusalem. He's going there. Right, so this is not just a general call to help people who are passing by. Set in the context of the gospel, he's going to Jerusalem. Why? In Luke 13, Herod wants Jesus dead, and people have said to him, don't go to where Herod is, because he wants you dead, and you're no good to us if you're dead. And Jesus replied to the people telling him about Herod, he replied, you go and tell that fox, and I love this, by the way, you tell that fox Herod, I will keep driving out demons, and I will keep healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day, I will reach my goal. What's he talking about? In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die. Not because he has a death wish, but rather he has a life wish for you and for me. Jesus is going to Jerusalem not just to challenge people to do good, not just to challenge systemic racism, as good as that would be. He's going to Jerusalem to save sinners like me. To save racists with little hearts. And please don't assume that's other people. He's going to Jerusalem to die for those who justify themselves with defences. He's going there to forgive sinners and to shower them with his transforming grace, to die for them to rise again, to give them new life, a new heart, to be part of the kingdom of God. So, three applications for a saved lawyer like me. One, be the neighbour versus who is my neighbour. You've got to be the neighbour. You've got to change your mindset. The Samaritan wasn't asking justifying defensive questions. 
who came across a person in need who is a neighbour. That's a challenge for any one of us with defensive hearts. Be a neighbour. It doesn't mean you endorse what people believe or do or say or the way they act. In the New Testament, it goes even further. It says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Consistent with the New Testament. And if we just did that, the world might change. Like this, the person in front of you. Julian was the last non-Christian ruler of the Roman Empire. And he said this, Nothing has contributed to the progress of the superstition of the Christians as their charity to strangers. The impious Galileans, the Christians, provide not only for their own poor, but, damn it, for ours as well. The world gets changed by people who do simple acts. Not trying to change the world. There's good things you might do in the systemic arena. Good, go for it. The world gets changed by powerless people stopping, seeing, noticing, caring. So go and do likewise. Secondly, the power of this parable is in the word neighbor. When I was a kid, I was taught, you know, everyone in the world, don't try to justify yourself, which of course is a category so big it becomes meaningless. But the idea here is quite simple, but still challenging. It is the person you come across who's in need, which means you're going to just stop and notice. Because people have all sorts of needs. The Book of Common Prayer, the prayer goes this, and we most heartily beseech thee of thy goodness, O Lord, to comfort all who in this transitory life are beaten up on the side of the road because they're in trouble, sorrow, need, sickness, or any other adversity. How can we be the answer to that prayer even to people who oppose my way of life with all their heart. So we need to stop, notice, pulse check our hearts and act where we can. Not a blank check, where we can. Just as an aside, the global nature of our world, television 60 years ago and the internet in the last 20 years, means that you can help people remotely in a way you couldn't in the past. One of the reasons we do compassion as a family some of you know about World Vision. Peter Trent, our treasurer here, is on the board of World Vision Australia. And so if you just email treasurer at churchofleningham.com and ask him about it. And one of the reasons we do the City Care Lunch, it was born 10 years ago out of this very parable. Third and finally, stop doing and sit at the feet of Jesus. I believe deeply that the story of Mary and Martha has been placed there for a reason. The priest and the Levite are busy with their tasks, too busy to receive the grace of God and share it with somebody in need. But I don't know about you, but the parable itself makes me want to feel a bit busy in the care of others. The next story is there for a reason. Martha is busy with her party and she's defensive about her service and judgmental of her sister Mary. She's doing all the work. It's, very, it's little heart behaviour, defensive and judgmental. But Jesus simply says to her, Listen to me. That's what Mary's doing. She's sitting at my feet. Learn from me. Receive from me. Stop doing and sit there at Jesus' feet like Mary. Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things. But few things are needed. Or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. Let's pray.
Father, we want to be challenged by this uh, parable, not least of which is just the bold statement of go and do likewise, but perhaps even more deeply, the possibility that we are defensive or justify ourselves or seek to um, get out of reasons why we might care for someone that we know who's in need or in his capacity. We really do pray that we'd love you with our heart, soul, mind and strength and love our neighbour as ourselves. But I pray that we'll do that out of a gospel heart, sitting at the feet of Jesus, resting, not, not restless, challenged, but confident in your grace. So confident that we want to share it with a neighbour, with those in need. Father, we pray this responding to your great love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood. Amen.